Friday morning. It's the morning after the local elections. Welcome to the Centre Circling podcast with uh, Charlotte Henry. Hello, hello. Hello, Charlotte, which is, uh, who is a journalist and a talker and a thinker and author of the forthcoming book on fake news called Not Buying It. Yes, and the book features a rather fantastic interview from one David Hirsch, who's sitting across the table from me and is an academic and the author of an excellent book, Contemporary Left Anti-Semitism. Welcome to the first episode of our show. Fantastic. I don't think we're going to start by saying what the podcast is going to be about or what it's centred on. We're just going to start by talking. And uh, hopefully over the weeks it will become clear what we're doing and why we're doing it. Yeah, um, it, it came because it's, you know, we're interested in that we come from things from a different perspective, as will no doubt become clear, but uh, we're interested in similar things. And so, yeah, hopefully you will enjoy what we have to say. And there's, funnily enough, we, we were inspired to, to start to shove a microphone in our faces because there's a lot going on in the world, a lot that is interesting. And it was all kind of typified, actually, in a way, with the with the local election results last night. So, as uh, John McDonald's tweet this morning says, we'll see what the final results of the local elections look like by end of day, as they are pretty mixed geographically, blah, blah, blah. But so far, message from the local elections, quote, Brexit, sort it. And then he says, message received. Do you agree with this message? Yeah. Is that the message? Well... It's actually, it appears really clear, but it's really ambivalent, isn't it? It's, it's unclear. Does he mean... You mean that the set of election results are unclear, what no, no, they no. mean? No, I mean Brexit, sort it. Does it mean make Brexit happen? Right. Does it mean stop Brexit from happening? And, of course, Labour is absolutely rock solid on not saying which of those it favours, and that message has worked pretty well for it over the last two, three years. Yes, the only thing the Labour Party has been clear on is that it's not being clear. Yes. Uh, uh, so, look, if the, the Lib Dems were sitting here, they would say they've had a great night, they have returned from their nadar of the 2015 local elections, they've picked up uh, all, a vast number of councils. Uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg is now represented by a Liberal Democrat councillor. Uh-huh, I didn't know that. Yes. Um, so, there we go. They would be very happy with their results. I think there was about 200 independents now. So I'm not sure what Labour wants. Um, Jeremy Corbyn is, at his heart, a Brexiter. A Lexiter. A Lexiter, yeah. There are those um, videos of him from years ago sort of doing conspiracy theory and saying the EU and the IMF and the World Bank and talking about them as though they are capitalist plots which control the global economy and we need to get out. That was in the context of when Ireland was having a referendum Mm. and he was saying Ireland should have its freedom and it shouldn't be forced to change its mind. So that was his, that's his, in his heart. So on the one hand, Corbyn is in his heart a Brexiter. Of course, Brexit is a coalition between people like Corbyn who believe that that the European Union is a capitalist club which would prevent us from having socialism and people like Jacob Rees-Mogg who believe that it's a socialist club which would prevent us from having proper capitalism and these people are in coalition. And then there's there's the issues of sovereignty and all of that type of thing which the particularly the Jacob Rees-Mogg types 
uh, the, the hard bucks of tears really play on. And I think was possibly, uh, and we don't want to go too much into this, but I think we've seen over the last two and a half, three years, that the issue of sovereignty was really underestimated by the Remain side. They didn't pull on the heartstrings. That's interesting. I, I, I will come. Remind me to come uh, okay. back. Okay, we'll come back to that. Um, so what I was saying, Corbyn in his heart is a Brexiter, but Labour has built its position by refusing to say. So Labour, so Jeremy Corbyn in general and his movement is it's a kind of empty cipher into which everybody is invited to pour their own dreams and hopes for the future. So the Remainers believe that Labour is going to save us from Brexit and the Brexiters believe that Labour is going to take us, you know, seriously. And so perhaps, on the other hand, Corbyn doesn't really care about Brexit. Perhaps he's not a real believer. Perhaps he's interested in coming to power. He's interested in talking about his issues, health and social security and austerity, and they just want Brexit out of the way to go away. Um, and they're desperately trying to hold together this coalition of, of the sort of angry people who voted Brexit as a protest vote against uh, whatever. We'll come back to the whatever yeah. is on the one hand, and then the more and more uh, constituency, the bigger and bigger constituency, which really fears Brexit and really doesn't like Brexit. So Labour's built its position by not saying, and perhaps... I'm tempted to use an awful cliche, the wheels are coming off that bus this morning. Uh, I I actually, I agree with you. We've seen, uh, as the results are starting to come through, we're we're seeing the the two main parties, the the Conservatives and Labour, be hit from both sides by Brexit. So people, it appears, are not voting Conservative because they don't want, because Brexit hasn't happened yet. And people are not voting Labour because they worry it might happen. And obviously on the Remain side, the Lib Dems have benefited. We, the Brexit Party and Change UK, uh, the independent group, did not stand in these elections. So we, didn't, we don't quite know where they fit into this. They will be standing in uh, the forthcoming European elections if we have them. Yep. Um, so that will be another dynamic there. Uh, my understanding so far is that UKIP have not... pulled up any trees I think there's a different set of issues entirely with UKIP because they have now become about more than Brexit haven't they Um, so there's that as well the the fallout will emerge in the kind of 24 hours and maybe when you're listening to this podcast you'll uh, have a whole you'll have seen a whole Uh different set of results and we'll be talking rubbish but it seems to me that the the two main parties are now both being equally blamed for the for the Brexit logjam. Ah, that's interesting. So the big, big picture, of course, has been clear over the last year or two, is that the first party to split will allow the other one in. So, uh, and what seems to have happened to me, actually, is that the Tories are split. The Tories are already split, and they will. that will be clear in the Euro elections. The Brexit party will do really well, and it, and it will do well because it will be supported by a whole big section of the Tory party. And the, the worry about that, one of the worries about that, is that Labour hasn't yet split in that way. So Labour is still, I think, ahead in the polls against the Tories. Yeah. there's a, Well, the Brexit Party at the moment, from polls I've seen, seems to be doing particularly well in the EU polling. So that will be interesting to see. 
But in terms of election, you know, I saw in one ward in Sutherland there was a kind of over 50% swing to the Lib Dems. Wow. You know, they they picked up over 50% of the vote and, you know, whacked Labour. I, I think it was a game from the Tories, that particular ward. But... Is it possible that that ward was a place where people work at, at Nissan come from? It, it could well be. I, I genuinely don't know enough. I wouldn't pretend to, to know enough about a specific ward in Sunderland. But, uh, <laughs> not not the, impressed, Charlotte. No, I know. But uh, the, the point is that the, these turnarounds are happening and they're, you know, you've got a Lib Dem leadership election coming up. Uh, and it seems to me that Vince Cable's parting gift is going to be a, a pretty comprehensive set of local election results, yep. which, as we know, is how the Lib Dems have traditionally built themselves, has always been on the council base. So this is so this raises another really interesting question about the Lib Dems. Lib Dems are suddenly a much stronger uh, party than they were a week ago. And what do you think about the, the idea about TIG, the new party, Change UK, and its failure to have made an electoral coalition with the Lib Dems for the coming Euro election? I think, well, look, they come from very different places. I, I don't think we know yet if TIG are actually small L liberals. They are centrists, clearly. They are Remainers, clearly. They probably had on the Vendor, policy Venn diagram, they would have a lot in common with the Lib Dems. But I don't know if they are small L liberals, and that may be where the, the clash comes. You know, look, Heidi Allen, let's be honest, could be a Liberal Democrat MP, right? No problem. Yeah. Uh, perhaps some of the... could, li- But I'm not sure some, particularly from the Labour side, could be. They come from a very different tradition, a very different thought process. I'm not, I'm not sure... I think that the, the specific politics of TIG and probably the Lib Dems are so up in the air at the moment. I mean, I have a certain idea about what is required and it's not quite <laughs> either of them. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm not convinced that they were right. Perhaps they could have just said for this election, for the Euros, we'll create one party, we'll put call it Remain, we'll put Remain on the ballot, we'll work together in this election... And after that, we'll see. After that, maybe we'll split again or maybe we'll see the possibilities of the future. Interestingly, one of the things that structures that whole decision, I think, is the, the, the existence of the SDP from the 80s, that the one truth everybody knows is that the SDP didn't work and the alliance with the Lib Dems was, in the end, a disaster. And that there's, a, there's a worry with that, actually. Hang on. How do you, what was it? Uh, part of the alliance. Let's not go too much into the history because we want to look at the current day. But just, what do you mean it was a disaster? Just quickly. Well, I'm I'm not talking about the history actually. I'm talking about the way that people th- remember it. Okay. And, and the thing. Bear in mind, I wasn't born at this point. <laughs> so. But the thing that people remember, I think, is that the attempt that the splitting away from Labour was the wrong thing to do, and the idea that Labour was dead was wrong, and in the end, Labour wasn't dead. And I think there's a danger here. So, the, you know, there's the cliche about every war, the beginning of every war is fought with the tactics and the ideas of the end of the last war. So okay. classically, um, France in, in the 1930s built the Maginot Line so that they could never be defeated. This by is not Ger- where I thought this podcast was going to go. Yeah, but no, okay. no, 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 it's a, it's a good story. So they built the Maginot Line so that the Germans could never, ever cross their trenches. They built a kind of mega trench, right, because yeah. they were ready 
for a war that they could win with the tactics of the last war. Right. And what happened, the Germans just went round it. <laughs> they just went round it because they had tanks and aeroplanes and things that weren't available 30 years yeah. ago. They went round it into the Netherlands and they came around into Paris. So, so it's true that we should learn the lessons of history, but sometimes if you're fighting the last war, you miss what's important here. And some people, so I think there's a real strong culture in the Labour Party that says splitting off and creating the SDP didn't work and we mustn't do it. And it's possible that that is building a Maginot line. It's, it's a mistake. Do you see what I mean? Do you know? Uh, do you see why I went there now? Uh, yeah, just about, just about. But what I think is going to be interesting is the Lib Dems have benefited last night from what we're seeing because they were basically the Remain option. There was no other option. Uh, so I think what endorses your view that there should be an alliance is that clearly there is an appetite to vote for a Remain party, even in places like Sunderland that voted Leave. Mm. We'll get, you know, we'll get the breakdown will emerge. But it seems to me that the Lib Dems have benefited by being the only Remain option on the ballot yesterday. Yep. Well, the, the and in the European elections, they will not be. Yes. And so it will be interesting to see how that, how that dynamic plays out. The two big parties are frightened of the Euro elections because Brexit and the Remain options will do well. I mean, I have to say, look... Can't, I guess I, I should come out, as it were. I voted Remain in 2016. I would vote Remain in a second referendum. I can see why people regard it as absurd that three years later we're going to be voting in European elections. I understand that. Am I happy to be voting in European elections? Well, yeah, probably, because it means we're still in the EU. Uh -huh. But well, it, it's, it is... I, I can understand the frustration felt by some people that we are having those elections. Yes. Look, I've, I've seen stories floating around that even conservative European candidates are going to vote for the Brexit party. Yes, some of them will, and some of them will, and the conservative Remainers, and there are a lot of them, might not vote Tory either. So, I mean, I think if, if those uh, EU elections happen, it, it will be like uh, Thursday night will look like a cakewalk for the Conservatives. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Well, so, but from my point of view, as somebody who is very fearful of Jeremy Corbyn, actually, and I talk about, so I talk as somebody who's just left the Labour Party and very fearful of the possibility of a Corbyn government, the collapse of the Tories is really scary in that way because although Brexit and Lib Dems and, and Remain might be getting stronger, when it comes to a general election, Corbyn will think this is his chance. Yes, though... Again, it's a bit in the abstract, and we want to focus on the results really from last night, but I I don't see any evidence in... I know people point to the 2017 election and how well uh, Labour-led Corbyn did. I'm not totally convinced that's true. If you couldn't beat that Conservative government at that point after that uh -huh. campaign, I don't know you ever will. But you could say that the other way around. I, see, I don't think the problem was the campaign. I think the problem was... With, I, I quite like Theresa May. I mean, I think the problem with Theresa May is Brexit. Breaking and, news. Yeah, breaking news. Breaking news, there is someone in the country that likes Theresa Absolutely. May and is prepared to say it. I think some of the horribleness people have... have I think oh, okay. that the, the, everyone wants to blame Theresa May. The, the reason Theresa David, May is... it's called sexism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that horrible stuff about how awful her dancing was, I think it was awful. The, the problem with Theresa May is that she decided to implement Brexit and Brexit is not 
implementable. That given that she made that decision, I think everything she's done since has been pretty smart. And interestingly, I think she might even come out on top. So uh, it's interesting you say that. I wrote a column saying that for a place called The Article not that long ago. So she well, that's might how I know. <laughs> yeah. Saying she might just have won. Yeah. We'll see. She didn't win last night, that is for sure. Let me tell you, Barry Gardner. Who's Barry Gardner? He's a big Labour guy. What yeah, is he? Barry Gardner's the. He's the shadow. International Development Secretary? Yeah, you see, we're experts. Um, <laughs> Barry Gardner says, tell, he told James Cleverly... Uh, Deputy Chairman of the Tories. Quote, we are in there trying to bail you guys out. So, so That's a very interesting quote, isn't it? Isn't it? Um, there's a lot to unpack there. So there's a real impetus to get out of the Brexit stuff, to get it over, to get it finished... Um, to not have to go into the Euros, where both the main parties are, are in real danger. Um, and I don't know, there's an interest... We can think about the coincidence of interest that both the Tories and Labour want to do some kind of a Brexit deal. I mean, so much to talk about. We can go back and talk about the whole democratic idea and deficit about the referendum and, and what it means and why it's not implemented. A whole... You know, that's a three-hour discussion. Um, and I've just forgotten what I was. What the other thing I, that I preferred to talk about was? Um... Uh, look, I, I think what really we're, we're coming to is. It, it, I'm trying to think: is this a make or break moment for the main parties? And I'm not sure. We've had this before. We thought in 2010, it, with Clegmania, it was going to be everything was going to change and that we were now a three-party country huh. and, you, and, you know, you had the Lib Dems in government and all of that. And, look, and then in 2015, David Cameron won a majority. But, I mean, 2010 is a different world, isn't it? But 2010 is a different world. Astonishing that the, the, the things that are in the public de domain, the things that people are saying, the things that are considered legitimate and ordinary... Let's move on to that a bit, because once again this week, we have had multiple, I think it's fair to say, uh, stories surrounding Labour and its leadership and issues of anti-Semitism. Yep. So we, it emerged that Jeremy Corbyn had written a book, uh, written a forward to a book by Hobson, yep. who is a well-established liberal thinker, but with a very, very strong strain of anti-Semitism running through a lot of his theories on anti-imperialism. So my memory of having read the first few pages of Lenin on imperialism <laughs> in the highest stages of capitalism a long, long time ago, my memory is that he talks about Hobson right at the beginning. Okay. So Lenin kind of uses Hobson uh, as his kind of empirical, you know, oh, this is the story. Stand back, listeners, this is your first-year lecture. <laughs> David, go. Yeah, OK. So Hobson went off to South Africa at the beginning of the... I told you. ...20th century, came, wrote this book about imperialism. And in it, there is the, the most amazing stuff. It, it, it is the kind of basis of Lenin's book, uh, Lenin's thought, the idea that this global system of imperialism is based somehow on capitalism, on the exporter monopoly capital, 
on the uh, European states having a kind of capitalist imperative to go and occupy everybody else in the world. Hobson makes that argument and then he intersperses it with things like this, quote, Does anyone seriously suppose that a great war could be undertaken by any European state or a great state loan subscribed if the House of Rothschild and its connections set their face against it? So let's pause and deal with that. House of Rothschild, which we know means? So this is the Rothschild's family, the Rothschild's bank. Basically, it is code for Jew, isn't it? Yeah, so... The Rothschild... No, I mean, we don't remember... You know, nobody remembers who the Rothschilds are and what the actual story about this family was. What what everybody remembers is this idea that this family was hugely rich, was very powerful, had people in all the different countries and acted as the power behind the throne through their domination of the banks and finance capital and they were the Jews and the Jews ran the world and the idea behind this, this Rothschilds meme is that the Jews secretly control everything and they're at the centre of capitalism. Right. And by and in his foreword, as I understand it, Jeremy Corbyn does not tackle those issues. Oh. Because from my perspective, right, it is perfect look, we know that people decades, centuries ago thought some rather things that we no longer consider acceptable. Yep. That, a variety of thinkers that are still great thinkers thought stuff we are not comfortable with yep. now, which is fine. But anyone writing, from my perspective, anyone writing a forward, anyone academically analysing, even non-academically analysing those works, would tackle those issues, yep. at least to isolate them and then look at the different issues that they raise separately, you know. So what Corbyn does is he just writes a 10-page foreword and he talks about some of the key ideas, or things that he thinks are key ideas in the book, and he says, this is a great book, read it. And there's nothing about the anti-Semitism. So the key, the the real question is whether you think... Let's be very clear on it. He does not tackle the anti-Semitism. He does not acknowledge the anti-Semitism. hasn't noticed it. Appears to have not noticed it. Um, I... My understanding is there is evidence within the forward that he has read the book. Well, the person who wrote the forward has read the book. <laughs> I'm saying nothing. Um, the, the, so the key question, I think, is... Well, one, there are many quick, quick key questions. One key question is whether Hobson's key argument about how finance capital was behind imperialism and behind this kind of racist plan to dominate the whole world... By the Jews... Well, well, the Leninist story is that it's finance capital. Right. Hobson clearly thinks that, that behind part of finance capital is the Jews, that finance capital is racialized, Which he personifies in the form of the Rothschilds. Quite explicitly. So, so is the anti-Semitism just a weird add-on by somebody who did things that they did in the olden days? <laughs> or is it something that fits in the theory? Is the theory fundamentally a conspiracy fantasy? And if it is, that's why it's so open and so attractive to anti-Semitism. And the bit that Corbyn likes about the theory is specifically the bit that that connects this financial imperative to imperialism. And Corbyn thinks that it explains the Iraq war and much more contemporary goings on. 
So, so the question is then, is the anti-Semitism just a weird add-on that we can just ignore, or is it, is it a part of the theory? Is it, is it inherent, or is it just contingent? Sorry, big words. Um, <laughs> and of course, one can ask the same about Corbyn himself. Is the anti-Semitic politics that he embraces inherent to his whole politics, or is it just a weird add-on that he, that he has? So in my book, actually, and based on interview with you in your book, uh, Contemporary Left Antisemitism, which, which tackles some of these issues, uh, to, it, I have always thought that, as you phrase it, contemporary left antisemitism does come from this place of seeing the Jew as uh, the, connecting it with money and power and influence and so on. And so I, th- I think a lot of left-wing anti-Semitism does come from that. That is, as someone not of that left tradition, that is how I, as an outsider looking in, that is how often I perceive it. Well, sorry. Can and, I just... it come, and because of that, and the reason why it relates to fake news as well, is because, as you cited just before, the conspiracy fantasy element of it. Uh, and that seems to personify a lot of the conversations we're having today. A lot, And what what... Go on, say what you were saying, then we'll, we'll, we'll come back to it. I want to talk about the reaction right. when this has emerged so, as well. So the inter- I think what you say is really interesting, and I think you're right about the history of left anti-Semitism. But contemporary left anti-Semitism, the anti-Semitism that we're talking about at the moment in contemporary Labour Party is never talked about like that. It's talked about in relation to Israel and right. Zionism and, and, you know, the... the the word Zionist has replaced the word Rothschild, hasn't well, it? Well, be careful. Not quite yet. So people say, you know, Israel is so terrible, Israel occupies and it behaves really, really badly. And then they say that people try to silence that message. They try to silence the voice of the Palestinians and they try to smear Jeremy Corbyn because he supports the Palestinians by saying that there's some anti-Semitic thing going on and that people who support the Palestinians are anti-Semitic. That's the, the kind of response. So the interest, So your discussion about left anti-Semitism and finance capital and capitalism and all that stuff is, is, is a kind of much older discussion. I'm old school, am I? <laughs> but, well, but the interesting thing then is that this story about Hobson and Corbyn has nothing to do with Israel, nothing to do with Zionism, nothing no, to do with absolutely. crimes against the Palestinians, real or imagined. This is only about the Rothschilds and their role in imperialism. And by the way, this idea that the Jews are behind racism, (laughs) the Jews are behind this global... As opposed to victims of it. Yes. The Jews are behind racism. We've seen that with the idea that, you know, the Jews should be... Their role in in the the financing of the slave trade should be looked at again. We got that from Farrakhan and from other people. Um, And actually, it was one of the key ideas in Pittsburgh for the shooter, mm-hmm. and he went to kill Jews in a synagogue because he said the Jews in a synagogue are bringing in immigrants into America. Mm. So the Jews are facilitating yes, was, racism. Yes, that was quite explicitly written in his manifesto, wasn't it? it was a bit, yes. Um, so the interesting thing here is yes. that this contemporary anti-Semitism, which is usually a, a fight around Israel and Zionism and the way people think and talk about that, is completely absent from this, this example. Mm. That is interesting. It's a very good point. And what I want to also look at, particularly in the context of fake news and the media, which is obviously the perspective I come at these things from, is the reaction to it. The 
the both the official reaction, as it were, from the Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party, and also his supporters. Yep. So, obviously, first of all, people... I've got a quote here, if you want. Go on, hit me. I would say that it's not surprising, given the way that some of these things are reported... It doesn't just apply to this story, but quite a few others. It's not surprising that people reading that think that Jeremy or other people in the Labour Party are saying things that they're clearly not. Who said that? This is from the official Labour Party, Corbyn's spokesperson. Corbyn's spokesperson. So Corbyn's spokesperson fundamentally says, this is fake news. This is a conspiracy by the right-wing press to smear Jeremy Corbyn and to pretend to give the impression that he believes things and he says things that he clearly doesn't say. And, and this has been consistently uh, the response when accusations of anti-Semitism are made against yep. either Jeremy Corbyn himself or figures within the Labour movement and the Labour Party. And it's, you know, I use the phrase gaslighting sometimes because that is what it feels like. You're seeing something which seems pretty clear and people are telling you what you're seeing and reading and hearing is not really what you're seeing and reading and hearing. And that's kind of the next level of it, an almost uh, (laughs) a trolling almost of the Jewish community and those who feel concerned about anti-Semitism. Really interesting word, trolling, because we'll come back to that, Mm. I think, when we look at the sort of Passover messages and all of that stuff. Yes, yes, which has been quite timely as well. But I just want to say that the thing you're describing also is a way that Jews in the Labour Party, Jews on the left, Jews in the unions, get alienated. They get turned into aliens on the left. So the way it happens is that the people who are concerned about anti-Semitism and raise issues about anti-Semitism, it is said, you're not just wrong, you're lying. And you're lying for Israel. And the reason you're lying for Israel is because you're right-wing. And as Pete Wilsman said famously, do you remember, they're Trump fanatics... So that people, Jews particularly, but people who oppose anti-Semitism, who are on the left, are not engaged with... They don't, people don't say, well, tell me about it, let's look at the evidence. No, they say, you're not really here, you don't really belong here, you really be- belong on the right, and you're here to hurt the left. So and that's how Jews get, get, get pushed yeah, out. Yeah, and of course that was kind of... Those recordings we heard of the, what was it, don't get British irony and all that kind of thing. Yes. That came out. We were, that that was all part of an alien uh, alienation, wasn't yes. it? I mean, the 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 contempt with with which Jeremy Corbyn is seen in that video to talk about these people that he calls Zionists. The Zionists remained silent, thankfully, and all of that. So the trolling thing, I think. So. So we haven't been into it in this podcast because it would take hundreds of hours to go back through the history of of Jeremy Corbyn and his connection to anti-Semitism and politics. But what we know is that by now he has no money in the bank anymore. He has no credit. He has no credit with the Jewish community that that many, many... The the trust has completely broken down. There's a huge consensus and a very solid consensus within the Jewish community in Britain that Jeremy Corbyn is a problem in terms of anti-Semitism. So that's the... the and let's not just... I don't want it to just be him as an individual because I think that, that would be one thing and you can... You, I think what, uh, from my perspective, is most concerning the Jewish community is that there is a movement around him that has this problem running through it. Yeah. Corbyn is not a leader. Corbyn follows the culture that he's in. 
um, interestingly. Okay. So we can, we will come back to that. We'll also come back to the idea that while it's true that there's a consensus in the Jewish community, there is a small minority within the Jewish community which says something else. But we again, we'll deal with that another day. But I want to go on to the to, to this central idea. Corbyn has no credit. Nobody believes he speaks in good faith anymore. So when the Labour Party puts out a Passover, a Pesach greeting to, to Jews, which, which has a picture of a loaf of bread... <laughs> I mean, when I saw that, so yeah, so obviously at the Passover festival, that bled, it, it, most, even if Jewish people, not very religious Jewish people don't do anything else over Passover, the likelihood is the one thing they would do is not eat bread. Yes. So there's stories that Jews were running away from slavery in Egypt and Pharaoh said, all right, go, you know, in a huff. He said, all right, go. And, they, and Moses said, come on, let's go quickly. Before he changes his mind, we don't have time to let the bread rise. We're going to go unleavened bread. And so this is key to the story. And the Labour Party then puts out a greeting with a loaf of bread. And look, any idiot can make an idiot mistake, but they have no credit in our bank. <laughs> I, shouldn't, I should stop talking about gonna, banks. I was going to say... Uh, uh, <laughs> nobody believes that that I mean look I think it probably was a stupid mistake but why should we why should we give them the benefit of the doubt I actually I don't think it's about giving people the benefit of the doubt I think the issue and then you had this uh, video emerge sort of within a couple of hours after this rather embarrassing thing went up of Jeremy Corbyn talking uh, to a Jewish member of the Labour Party going through uh, the Passover book and talking about the festival and so on. And and it, the problem, there is just, as you said, there is no good faith anymore. Yep. There, it, feel, it feels trolling, it feels like just a bit of a wind-up. And the, look, I understand if I was a, a Labour person, a left Labour person who was a Corbyn supporter, I would be sitting saying to me, what would you argue? He just ignored it. Yeah. What would you say then? No, I've, I've seen that. So, so people say to you, well, he can't win, can he? If he puts out a Pesach greeting, then people say um, that that's just trolling. And if he doesn't do it, people say, well, why didn't he do it? And I think actually that's dead right. I think Corbyn can't win. No. The Labour Party have a leader who can't relate to the Jewish community in a winning way. The reason is because of the long, long history of awfulness that he has presided over, that has come into the centre of the party with him, that he hasn't dealt with, and that he licences. I mean, we'll, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this over the weeks. We don't need to do everything at once, but, but the Labour Party can't win with him as leader. You mean it can't win with the Jewish community? Well, it can't put out a Passover greeting and it can't not put out Passover greeting whatever it does can't win and one of the things because it has lost the Jewish I mean look again we don't want to go into too much of the history of it but there is a strong history of connection between the Jewish community and the Labour Party that has gone back decades if not centuries so one of the things that connects all the things we've been talking about today in terms of uh, of Labour and Corbyn is that he has real difficulty talking about Jews, right? Okay. But Corbyn can oppose racism in general. Yes. He can oppose bigotry in general. He can oppose anti-Semitism and all other forms of racism. So when, with the Hobson book, mm. he said his his answer was, oh, yes, it was terrible, some of the things that was written in there about minorities, but the book is fundamentally a very important book. Now, 
Go on. <laughs> the, this specifically anti-Semitic line of the Rothschilds controlling global capitalism, Corbyn can't even say specifically that that's anti-Semitism. He says minorities. Well, OK. So I think, first of all, we've seen your point about the, you know, Labour can, you know, can't convince anyone anymore. They can't win on this issue anymore with him. With the Hobson book, yep. because he, you know, people said, oh, it's an old book, it's quite legitimate, he's a, he's a significant thinker, it's legitimate for someone to read and to write it forward for Hobson's work. But because there is so little, as you, we don't want to use the phrase, but credit in Money the bag, <laughs> uh, people just said, OK, but it keeps happening again yep. and again yep. and again. You didn't realise that you were at a funeral where people from the Munich massacre were involved yep, in the, the Munich laying. massacre, yes. the wreath laying. You know, the, this. you didn't realise that the mural with bankers... Yep. And it's the most the, unlucky anti-racist in, in the history of the world. Right. But let me let me push that point about yeah. minorities. So when courts... So no, before, my question on. to you, which I think you're about my answer, is had he said the anti-Semitism in this book is unacceptable, yeah. but the ideas about imperialism are OK, yep. would that have been enough? Would it have been enough for you? <laughs> Diane? <laughs> it, it would have been a position. Right? right, he he could take the position that the anti-Semitism is is a kind of weird add-on, but the central theory is standalone without it and is very strong. I don't accept that. I think the central view of finance capital being connected to this global system of imperialism is much too simple, and I think in most people's hands it turns into conspiracy fantasy, and that's why it's so attractive to anti-Semitism. So it would have been a position, but it, it's not my position. But but to push the thing but about no, minorities... But I, I want to push this a bit. <laughs> would, would you have said, OK, I don't agree with you, but at least you're being legitimate and dealing with the anti-Semitism? Well, I, one of the things I would have said is you always deny the possibility of left anti-Semitism. For you, anti-Semitism is always something from the right. Well, racism in general is always of the right. Racism in general, anti-Semitism, Nazism. It's, Islamophobia. It. My mother was at uh, Cable Street. Street. What did you say? Homophobia? Is, Islamophobia. Islamophobia, homophobia. Everything's from the right. Everything bad is from the right. And what Corbyn would have had to 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 admit is that Hobson is a left anti-Semite. Hobson is, a, is one proper, authentically left-wing tradition of anti-Semitism. And he's very important. He was influential on Lenin, and Lenin was influential on everybody. And, and Corbyn hasn't got that far either. He hasn't said, yeah, this was a left anti-Semitism, and, and left anti-Semitism is something in our tradition. Of course, I don't want to say that, that the whole history of the left is anti-Semitic. It's not. The whole history of the left is a battle between anti-Semitism and people who, didn't, who, who opposed anti-Semitism, and I can, I can do a lecture on that as well, but I won't right now. I want to say that the other thing about mono, the minorities. Yes. So when he came on this awful video in which he was discussing with a young uh, woman, Jewish woman member of, of the Labour Party, and, she, and he was giving his view of what Passover means, which already is very odd. You know, why would Jeremy Corbyn, the man who, <laughs> to lay with the metaphor, has no money in the Jewish bank... Um, and actually, who, we, who we went do... to the, uh, you know, the, the Judas Seder yes. at the last Passover yes. festival. Come back to that. But 
So why is he giving his interpretation of the Passover story? No idea. But what is this interpretation? And his interpretation is that the Passover story is about being a stranger in the land of Egypt, and it's about how minorities are treated. Now, um, again, minorities. So, so the Passover story at its core is not about how minorities are treated, it's how the Jews were treated. It's a Jewish festival in which Jews remember. In fact, they are exalted more than... Rem I'm, I'm doing theology now, which is really not my thing. But they're exalted not just to remember, but to feel themselves as if they were a slave in the land of Egypt and that they liberated themselves from slavery. So the story is about Jews coming out of Egypt and actually, God forbid, going to Israel and finding freedom in the land of Israel. Now, you know, this is a complex story and the Israel of the Torah is completely different from the Israel of 1948 and all of that, but we can have that discussion. But the point that for Corbyn, again, is, a, is that Passover is just universalized. The Jewish nature of the, the redemption of the Jews by the, and the, the smoting the smiting, the smoting of the enemies of the Jews by the Jewish God is just got rid of. And it's universalised into a kind of universalistic story about that we should be nice to minorities. And again, again, he cannot accept that Passover is anything to do with the Jewish story of liberating itself from slavery. And my issue with this is that I find it hard to imagine either Jeremy Corbyn as an individual or the the left more generally, um, doing that with any other minority grouping. Mm. I don't... For example, uh, it was uh, this week, it was, I think, the 20th anniversary of the Admiral Duncan pub bombing in Soho. Yep. You don't... That does not become a story about uh, an attack on minorities in general. Yeah. That is that was remembered as a homophobic attack. Interesting, but and also even and more so because it, th there was also a, an attack in Brick Lane yes. by the bagel shop against Bengalis, wasn't there? Correct. So in a sense, it, Which, it explicitly um, was against minorities in general, but it's still not universalised out of existence. No, no, no. See and I mean? you, you remember um, when the uh, recent attacks in New Zealand happened uh, against... Yep. Uh, Muslims are get, uh, multiple mosques. Yep. We remember that rightly as an attack against the Muslim community, which it explicitly was. Yep. Muslims were targeted. Muslims were murdered yep. in their place of worship. And at the moment, uh, it seems to me that the left in general, the, the Corbynite part of the left, if you like, if that's the right phrase, is unable, is able to focus on other minority groups and other, I hate to use this phrase, but oppressed groups, if you like, mm -hmm. uh, other groups that are regularly discriminated against, but seems to get itself in a tangle when it's talking about Jews. Yep. I mean, look, it is... It, is that is, a fair assessment? Well, it is. I mean, it's really interesting, the idea of whether the Jews are oppressed, which again takes us into another whole discussion sure. about whiteness and racism and all of that stuff. Um I mean, what isn't up for discussion, though, is that Jews are a huge minority. Yes, a small minority. Yes. Uh, well, yes, <laughs> yes, if you like. Um, what I want to say about that is, is that, that we always come up against this 
this problem with Holocaust education, right? Yeah, there's, uh, there's, there's and, of course, this week was Holocaust Memorial Day, and, again, Jeremy Corbyn Indeed. did posted a picture online of him lighting a memorial candle. There's a, there's a wonderful, I think it must be a charity, a wonderful movement that sends out a candle and a name of someone specific murdered in the Holocaust, so someone, uh, an individual is remembered. Yeah. And Jeremy Corbyn had one of these ye- called yellow candles uh, and a, day, a card of, of a victim of the Holocaust and, again, posted a picture of him light with the candle and marking Holocaust Memorial Day. Yep. I can tell you how much anger there is about that specific video. Again, Jeremy Corbyn can't win. And he can't win. So if he takes the name of a child who was murdered in the Holocaust and lights a candle to remember that child, there are people up and down the country saying how awful for the soul of that child to be remembered by a man who doesn't oppose anti-Semitism, who has led the Labour Party in in a way which allows institutional anti-Semitism to take hold and all the rest of it. I can't tell you how many people I know of have said Kaddish for that kid that Jeremy Corbyn... Have have said a um, the Jewish memorial prayer. Yeah, that people have seen that specific name that Corbyn sort of said that that he because they they're so offended that Jeremy Corbyn would remember it. Yeah, yeah. That they want to say almost if they are religious they want to say the prayer if you like to try and sort of I don't want to put it this way but. Save that victim's soul yeah. almost. It's amazing, you know. Is, imagine is, that the, is that what you're describing? Yes. yes. Um, so the, the the thing about Holocaust education is that it's always it's tempting to do the Holocaust to, to to teach the Holocaust as an event in Jewish history. This is what happened to the Jews. This is how it happened. It's also tempting to teach the Holocaust as a as a universal lesson against racism. This is where racism and bigotry can lead, and it's a lesson for us all. Mm. And, of course, in truth, you must teach the Holocaust in both ways, as, as something specific about Jews and about anti-Semitism and also as something about bigotry in general. This uh, reminds me of a, a wonderful scene in one of my favourite plays, uh, The History Boys, where they're discussing Holocaust education. Yeah, and I've, what, seen that, I've seen that film, like... A hundred times because right. my daughters love it. I, I I love it as well. I saw it on stage <laughs> twice. I, I have it on film. And there is a scene where the kind of slightly radical history teacher is discussing the Holocaust and teaching them the Holocaust. And he asked them, how basically, how does one understand the Holocaust? And one of them, one of the boys who's kind of fallen for his... his uh, theories says and his charisma and his charisma and his charm basically says you have to see it as a historical event like any other like i can't remember what the comparison they use now but they use a rather simple not emotion not emotive example oh the reformation of the monasteries isn't it they compare it to the reformation of the monasteries and another boy in the class gets hugely offended and says no you can't do that and this is what it almost comes back to. Yeah, it, it's um, it, it's frightening actually. There's a passage in my book where I said that that Holocaust Memorial Day becomes a moment when you're just bracing yourself and waiting for anti-Semitic responses, for responses that kind of say, well, the Jews were oppressed then now, but the real Nazis today are the Jews, mm. and the Jews are the Palestinians, and and, and Holocaust Memorial Day, you know, is going to elicit some really horrible kind of 
anti-Jewish stuff. And, uh, um, and there's something else that I was thinking yesterday, which is that how can one really, really properly remember the hugeness of the Holocaust without also thinking about the fact that it was possible for Jewish life to endure and to come and to come back and half of the Jews in the world more or less live in Israel and Israel is many things but it's also a story about the renewal and the survival of Jewish life and how you can talk about the Holocaust in one breath as being something that that's you know, so terrible, but in the other breath, that the, the, the story of the renewal and the survival is just treated as an evil bothers me. Yes. It, look, it, it brings up... A, uh, there are a lot of issues that we need that will keep... The point is that these issues keep coming up, yep. right? And it is a, a consistent problem, and no doubt in future episodes, we're, we're going to have to return to it. I, I want to say something about that. So people already will be thinking, I mean, we haven't really said what this podcast is about, but this podcast is about <laughs> a kind of renewal of the centre ground. Right, that's... It's, we want to look at issue. We're kind of, we can't, how to, how to describe this, you and I come from different parts of the centre, shall we say? I come from the mad Trotsky's left originally. Right, but you've, <laughs> you're feeling much better now. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about that too. But, but this is what I want to say. So people will say, you know, you're interested in, in the rebuilding, rethinking the centre, circling the centre of British politics. Why have you already spent half an hour going on and on about the Jews and anti-Semitism? <laughs> Tell me, David, why are you looking worried that I'm expecting you to answer the question? I, I, I think I know the answer. Go on, <laughs> you tell us. So we're in a real bind. I think that the key thing that we need to think about in the centre ground of British politics is defending ourselves against these huge attacks against democratic life, the democratic state, democratic norms and ways of thinking. And I would name these this array of attacks against democratic life, populism. Mm -hmm. And I think the populist movements, yes, they're different, but they have a lot in common. And I'm talking about the Trump movement, and I'm talking about the Corbyn movement, and I'm talking about the Brexit movement, and the Le Pen movement in France, and the AFD in Germany, and the people who... Five star? Absolutely, governmental power in Italy and in Hungary and in Brazil. This is a global Bolsonaro, movement. I mean, Bolsonaro, they call, is the, the Trump of the tropics, isn't he? Yep. That's his whole shtick. Yeah, these things are all different and, and we, you know, they're not all one thing, but they're related. And I think the task that I think is urgent is to, to build a, a, some kind of movement that can defend ourselves against that. So, again, why are we going on about anti-Semitism? <laughs> And the problem is that in the end, those populist movements... Well, one, because it's been in the news this week. Well, it, it's in the news every week. Why is it in the news every week at the moment? Why? It wasn't in the news 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Why is it in the news every week now? And the reason is because those populist movements are at heart fundamentally conspiracy fantasies. What's at the heart of our problems in Britain today... It's the foreigners, it's the EU, it's the bureaucrats, it's the 1%, it's the Zionists, a whole different set of answers. It's the people behind the power in Washington who sell your jobs to China. All of that stuff, it's, I think, fundamentally conspiracy fantasy. 
And conspiracy fantasy is structurally similar to anti-Semitism and it attracts anti-Semitic thought. So, so this is the kind of awful problem that I'm wrestling with at the moment. People will say, you know, I'm for democracy, I'm for a new centre ground, but I don't want to, to be obsessed by Jews. <laughs> and, of course, what anti-Semitism does is it puts Jews at the centre of all that is bad in the world. And we're in a kind of awful, awfully ironic position that what's happening more and more is that anti-Semitism and conspiracy fantasy is at the centre of all that threatens democracy. And that's why people won't like it, but they're going to have to take anti-Semitism seriously. And they won't, nobody wants to be accused of, you know, why are you on about Jews? Why do you privilege the rights of Jews? Why, why anti-Semitism is so important? What about the left behinds? What about the white working class? What about the Muslims? And that is going to be the thing that we're going to come up against. The, Which are all legitimate points. They're all legitimate points. And of course, I'm not against thinking about any of those people, but, but anti-Semitism, which by the way, is really nothing to do with Jews. Anti-Semitism is nothing to do with Jews. Anti-Semitism done to, to to Jews, not by them. Anti-Semitism is a fantasy about a fantasy Jew, right? Or okay. A fantasy yeah. called the Jews. So, so I'm not expressing this as coherently as I want to, but the terrible, the bad news for people who are interested in defending democratic politics is that they're going to have to learn to take on anti-Semitism. You can't leave it to the Jews to do, because it's not about them. Anti-Semitism is a form of appearance of anti-democratic politics. And, and it's going to drive us all mad. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, having to so deal with it. keep listening, because we're <laughs> going to drive you mad over the... Uh, but thank you very much for listening to this first episode of uh, Centre Circling podcast. It's uh, great to have you on board, and we're, we're, we're going to make this a weekly thing. Yep. There will no doubt be stories every week that we can dissect and dive into so we look forward to having you join us if you enjoy the show do share it on social media and with your friends bye from charlotte henry and goodbye from david hatch bye